welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we're watching The World According to Garp. A struggling young writer finds his life and work dominated by his unfaithful wife and his radical feminist mother, whose best-selling manifesto turns her into a cultural icon. Mm -hmm. Got nothing? Nothing to say about this movie? This movie is weird. I have never read John Irving. Okay. Neither have I. I'm sure I have read a part of A Prayer for Owen Meany, because I know I've heard passages from it. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a novel. <laughs> yeah. And this maybe should have stayed a novel. That's not to say that I didn't like the movie. There's a lot about this movie to like, but it doesn't really work as a movie. Yeah, it's very episodic, which is fine but again like there's just they're trying to do too much like now it's very easy for us to go oh this should have been a miniseries but then you know in 1982 nobody was thinking that but it also starts to beg the question at what point should this just not be anything other than what it is yeah like sometimes you should just let the medium be experienced the way it is but you know how often does that happen too Because, like, conceptually, all the beats of this story, I went, well, if this was a novel and I had a lot more time to sit with this reading it, Mm -hmm. I would be way more captured by the environment and the ambiance of this story being told. Sure. It really does give this sort of optimistic, kind of Lynchian vibes, but in that way where it's not creepy, it's just bizarre. Yeah. Just that sort of dreamy state of looking at suburban america i love that kind of style Mm -hmm. but i can clearly tell this is a much deeper richer story than what you're able to put on screen in two hours and 15 minutes i just feel like the movie's so weird that like any of the nuance is lost yeah and like there's also a part where the heart of the story which is the relationship between the mom and the son gets lost as well There's a lot of, because you've got to keep it moving, Mm -hmm. and it's admirable that they keep it moving. Sure. I mean, at no point did I feel like this movie dragged, other than you're going like, I don't quite understand where we're going, but at least it was like moving and the plot kept going, and I didn't feel like we were stuck at any point. Sure. But it also doesn't work for the the richness of the characters involved. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty much, you need to narrow the plot and up the characters. That's what we really need here. Yeah, I think Because the characters are the heart of the story. Sure. And they're interesting characters. But it's just, yeah, it gets very episodic. And it's like, yeah, this, this, yeah, you lost your thread. This one's a weird one. Well, let's get into our discussion of it. The budget for this film was $17 million, considering the amount of locations and... The caliber of actors, though we shall say some of that is going to be interesting when we talk about them, um, that this budget seems pretty reasonable. And it grossed $30 million, which for a movie like this, which is relatively small and is going to be limited in who sees it, sure, not bad. No, that, that seems reasonable. I mean, you have to bank on the fact that you had a very hot commodity in your lead role. Mm-hmm. It as a movie is captivating and interesting. I'll, I'll give it that. Well, let's talk about our writing. And of course, 
The writer of the novel is John Irving. Now, he is a very well-known American novelist. He's done a lot of movies that have film adaptations. Mm -hmm. Um, Other ones include A Prayer for Owen Meany, The Cider House Rules, A Widow for One Year, and The Hotel New Hampshire. Okay. Um, And he's also, he's one of those prolific writers. He's very much a literary writer. Mm Mm-hmm. As opposed to the like paperback novelist type writers out there, he's mu- very much in that tradition. Okay. And then our screenplay was written by Steve Tesich. Before this, he wrote Breaking Away, Eyewitness, and Four Friends. After this, he wrote American Flyers and Elaney. Okay, I'm not familiar with any of those. I know. <laughs> what do we think of the writing of this movie? Well, I think the story just wanders too much. It's it's too episodic, which is not not great for what they're trying to accomplish. And yeah, it does feel like a book. And yeah, I just I I think it needs a real it needs a real tighten up. You know, I think this would be worth investigating more as similar to our Kubrick a corollary. If your book adaptation feels like a novel, that means you did a bad adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> if you could not find the through line and how to adapt it to a movie to make it feel like a movie, you did a bad job. Yeah. It's hard to tell where the line of this is an unfilmable novel, because there are some of those. Let's be very sure. clear. Yes. Versus this is just a bad version of the script. And we didn't get the caliber of person who looked at this novel and went, hmm, okay, we need to take this part out. We need to rearrange these things and we need to make it work so that it's actually going to make sense when we put it on screen. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to believe the latter, especially because we're going to have some who could have been betters here that make a fuck ton of sense for this movie. Okay. I've heard great things about Breaking Away. I'm sure Steve Tesich is a great screenplay writer. This script just does not work for this story. No, it doesn't. It's just focusing on all the wrong things. John Irving's mother was not married when he was conceived. He had never met the man, and his mother refused to talk about him. Eventually, Irving said, Well, if you won't tell me about him, I'll make him up and the circumstances of my birth. Her reply to him was, Go ahead, dear. Thus, he made this novel. I feel like that's more bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) but it makes a ton of sense for the quality the dreamlike nature of it the way he's like weaving in this sort of real emotional weight of not having a father with all of these fantastical ideas about it sure that makes a shit ton of sense and it's something that the movie the movie only touches on in reference and an inference it never actually just goes to it and talks about it Mm mm-hmm Like, all you get is just that Garp is so intensely loving and protective of his children. And even when he fucks things up, the number one thing he's worried about is not necessarily his relationships, but his family and his home. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't cry. I'm the one who's supposed to be crying. I gotta do everything around here. I gotta cook, I gotta clean, I gotta cry. He's in there, right? In there. 
Oh, it's nice in there. I know. And I mean that that makes a ton of sense, but he never says it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird to watch in this movie. Oh, I agree. The novel was published in 1978, his fourth novel at the time, and it won the 1980 National Book Award for paperback the year before it was on the shortlist for National Book Award. Mm. Just two years later, his book The Hotel New Hampshire would be made into a film, and Warner Brothers purchased the rights to the film almost immediately after it was published in 1979. It was tied to a three-picture deal with our director. Oh, okay. I mean, it was a it was a runaway smash hit, and it was hugely regarded by critics. It's one of those rare books that comes out where both sides go, number one, this is insanely readable and everybody's going to read it. And number two, it's actually an instant new classic. Hmm. It's one of those kinds of books. There are a lot of differences from the novel itself. Okay. Instead of moving to Manhattan, Garp and Jenny move to Europe in the novel. Okay which I kind of like, a little bit further removal into a more exotic locale, Europe standing in for exotic in the, at this juncture, mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense for the dreaminess of everything. Sure. Garp and Helen cheat on each other repeatedly in the novel, not just one time. I get condensing that for time, but showing that their relationship is not a focus is something that's very much missed. Sure. I'm fine with the condensing that they're both guilty of that. Makes sense. Yeah. Ellen James has a much larger role in the novel. She develops a very strong and lasting friendship with Garp. Oh, okay. That's cool. And in the novel, Garp does actually die after Pooh shoots him. The film leaves it open to interpretation. I I don't think it's open to interpretation. Pooh shot him. (laughs) Well, but we don't know if he's dead. He's just on the way to the hospital. It's horror movie rules. We don't see him die on screen. (laughs) Who could have been better? Ooh, okay. (laughs) Nora Ephron and William Goldman. Oh, yes. William Goldman would have nailed this. Nora Ephron could have nailed this too. Probably, but I if if I have to pick between those two, I would almost go for Goldman because he would get the absurdity of it a little bit more for me. Oh, sure. I'm I'm fine with that. But yeah, the two of them. Easy, easy winners. You know, there are others. There were no other names attached. A lot of screenwriters were approached about this because it was a big hit. The fact that the book was so literary Mm -hmm. and because it's a very dark story led a lot of writers to just sort of step back from it because they were really like, I don't know if we can do this. Sure. (laughs) Considering the source material is... A lot darker, a lot deeper, <laughs> and this is trying to make it light enough to be watchable while still having all those serious themes. Mm-hmm. But man, either one of them would have found the balance. They're that good. Oh, they're both phenomenal. Also, if those two were like, uh-uh, I can't do this, that should give you a clue. Yeah. If those two are telling you, I can't finagle this story... This might not be a story you want to make it to a movie. Now let's talk about our director. Mm-hmm. Diana, we can't escape him. He keeps coming back. Oh, who? It's George Roy Hill. Oh my. You talk about him a lot. This is our fourth movie. 
of George Roy Hill or? on this show. Okay. Well, I, I, wow. Okay. Thoroughly Modern Millie. Oh, yeah. The Sting. Yeah. And Slapshot. Oh, I forget about Slapshot <laughs> because it's awful. And he is back again. Okay. I'm not giving his credits anymore because if he keeps showing up on the show, I'm just like, well, here he is. He is apparently our director. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> We've inadvertently done a series on him. I guess so. What uh, what do we think of George Roy Hill's directing here? You know, it's okay. I think there's a playfulness to it that is appropriate for the story. And, and dreamlike. You said dreamlike a couple times. But it can't save the script. I, I almost feel like he strays too far into the comedy, which is what you bring George Roy Hill in to do. Well, and your lead is Robin Williams. So, yeah. There is that, although we're going to get into that. I, George Roy Hill was firmly at the helm of this movie. Mm-hmm. Robin was not allowed to go off. He started improvising as soon as they started rehearsing at Columbia University and were filming initially in New York. He quickly learned Hill was not okay with him improvising and straying from the script. Mm-hmm. Per Robin, quote, I'm used to working at a high energy level, but George helped me go for subtler nuances that are vital to the character, unquote. Hmm. So I think he let Robin improvise when it was appropriate when it was appropriate but i think he firmly went "Mm -mm, we're not going there okay and i think that's that's to the movie's credit Mm -hmm. robin williams does not overshadow this movie and he is that kind of performer he can he can take over a movie sure he doesn't for this one no he doesn't and so that's that's the biggest thing that george roy hill brings to this movie i just when the movie gets dark it doesn't feel like it gets dark enough. Yeah, I think that's fair. You get into such heady, absurd territory with the comedy. I'm wishing we had those like boogie night scenes of jarring darkness along with it. You know, it's the the moment where they really missed the opportunity was when um with the car accident. Oh my god. Because you know what happens, but you don't get confirmation until he's sad and he's crying and he's saying, I miss Walt mm-hmm. because you just can't. I, I mean, you know, kids in movies, sometimes it's just like, well, they're we, we, they're just not on screen because they're outside playing or whatever. You don't get any like confirmation until much later. And it's sad and it's and it's a beautiful moment. But it's like we should have gotten more out of this. And, you know, that that's where it's hard to tell whether it's the script or the directing mm-hmm. and, and, and who's responsible for what. Mm-hmm. But it's missing that additional layer. Mm-hmm. What's really fascinating here, too, is watching it going like, oh, my God, there's so much Wes Anderson in this movie. A little bit. Sure. Like he pulled he may not have even known it, but he was pulling cues from this movie. Probably. The Especially the the frankness of talking about heady subjects in a very blasé way. Mm. You know, everything Glenn Close does in this movie is very Wes Anderson. Yes, she is a Wes Anderson character. <laughs> so so is uh, Roberta Muldoon. Yeah. There's something missing from it that I think takes away from the depth of the story. Sure. 
in his directing. And while he does a great job of making it look gorgeous, because it is, and doing a really good job helping the actors give the best performance, it's sometimes just lacking in that little bit of punch that it really needs to have to really hit home. They did film in New York City for five weeks before moving to Fisher's Island, New York, for the Sag Harbor scenes and Mm -hmm. Jenny's house. The island was only accessible by a ferry that was not always reliable. Oh. And both Swoozy Kurtz and Jessica Tandy were both on Broadway in the evening, so they had to be flown out from New York City. Mm. And many locals on the island filled in as extras, and they had a softball game against the cast and crew on the final Sunday of filming. Hmm. Cute. All right, let's talk about that cast, because it is the highlight of this movie. Yes. We start with a man I don't believe we've discussed on this show before. No. I, we have not. It is the one, the only Robin Williams. Just a classic of our childhood in many different ways. An incredible comedic genius who also had such great acting chops. And I think the most amazing thing about watching this movie is that everybody always thought of him as a comedian until Goodwill Hunting. Sure. But many, many people will point out, and this movie is among them, that he always had dramatic potential. He always, always was a haunted man. Always, of course. And his comedy was that mask. I mean, it's a quote that I've seen so much, especially recently, is that people don't pretend to be depressed. They pretend to be okay. Be nice. Which is just so true. And so... He always had that well to pull from. And it was just, he was just so fantastical at the comedy. And it was just so, it was both absurd and just playful at the same time. He played, you know, I remember Mork and Mindy and hearing about all of that. You know, he's the genie in Aladdin. And it's just like, that's just purely from him that that's what you want to see him do this genius thing he can do. But it's so beautiful to see him hit other notes, too. And he's, he's just, he's lovely. I love him in this movie. I do, too. Because there's some other movies that, that he really does this in. But mm-hmm. this one is the first one I've seen in a while where I go, he's doing both of those things in the same movie. Another movie that gets credited with this type of performance with him is Dead Poet Society. He has a much smaller role, but it's similar in that, you know, he's both very serious but also so magnetic and he has to be inspirational to these boys and it's beautiful and so it's definitely um, a similar lane he's just he's phenomenal i love this from him i think we have to do a robin williams series now david (laughs) well later down the road we might have one i know for sure could be coming up yes you know for me really i think watching him with kids Oh, it's just magic. And just how magnetic he is around them. And then how haunted he is in all of his personal life. Like, you don't get a lot about Garp as a person Mm -hmm. because the script is very thin on it, which is frustrating. Mm -hmm. Robin is the one who fleshed all of that out in his acting. Mm -hmm. He's that rare instance of... The script doesn't give you a whole lot to go on, but this movie and this performance gives you everything. 
And that's what's so awesome to watch for him in this movie, particularly. It's very, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. Robin Williams was actually briefly a wrestler in high school before he got an injury and had to quit. Mm -hmm. He trained with author John Irving, who was actually a seasoned wrestler. Um, And those two sparred to train under the supervision of the stunt coordinator. Mm. Makes sense for John Irving. Like, John Irving would probably write about that because he's putting a whole lot of autobiographical details into the story. Mm. John Irving also mentioned in a memoir of his movie experiences that while being waxed for the role, Robin Williams was incredibly profane while yelling. Yes. (laughs) They waxed Robin Williams. Yeah. If you know anything about that man... Harry, hairy man. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Some who could have been betters. No. A man who happened to be a very good friend of Robin, Christopher Reeve. Oh, okay. Very different vibe, but could have been interesting. Sure. If you were going for the very like classic good looks guy who's haunted in life, mm-hmm. and Christopher Reeve's a good enough actor to pull that type of role off. Sure. Jeff Daniels. Okay. Just a year later, Terms of Endearment, I Mm. mean, and auditioning for the role, Robert Wool. No, please don't put Arliss in this movie as Garp. No. No. All right, let's talk about Garp's counterpart. We have Mary Beth Hurt. Before this, she was in Interiors and A Change of Seasons. After this, Daryl, My Boyfriend's Back, The Age of Innocence, Shimmer, Six Degrees of Separation, Affliction, Bringing Out the Dead, Autumn in New York, The Family Man, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Lady in the Water, and Young Adult. She was married just before this to William Hurt, the very famous Mm. actor, and then got married to Taxi Driver's writer Paul Schrader, who she is still married to today. Interesting. What do we think of Mary Beth Hurt in this movie? I like her a lot. Uh, Her and Robin have good chemistry together, so they're, they're fun together. They have good chemistry in that very awkward, slice-of-life American way. Mm-hmm. They, they have chemistry in that way where it's not like they're super lovey-dovey and charming. It's they seem like an actual real-life couple who struggles in their life. Mm-hmm. And that's its own kind of chemistry. <laughs> mm. That's what's very interesting. She's just really good. Yeah. Like I don't have a whole lot more to say about her than that, but... She, she holds her own against a man who, by all rights, could completely take over a scene. Then we have eight-time Oscar nominee Glenn Close playing Jenny Fields. Mm-hmm. She's fucking Glenn Close. I have her credits here. Fuck that noise. She's Glenn fucking Close. I mean, yeah, this is, this is her debut, isn't it? Her film debut. Yeah. Glenn Close is just one of those women who's always looked like she was in her late 40s. <laughs> um, and that's not uh, an insult. She's a beautiful woman, but she just has a mature look. And when you look at her and she's playing young, that's just her face. And when she's playing old, that's also just her face. <laughs> I, I know they did do a little age makeup on her, but they she just has a very mature look. And it's fascinating. And it's just like, wow. You're amazing. She's amazing. And then she's just Glenn Close all the time. She knows every single thing about this character from the moment you see her come on screen. Yep. Like, she just is Jenny. Mm-hmm. 
it's magnetic. It's you anytime she's on screen, you're just drawn to her because she's completely unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And she's also sweet. You're like, you are bizarre and a little creepy and also very loving. I don't know what to think of you. Mm-hmm. She nails a character that by all rights should just completely go off the rails and just just nails it in one. It's mm-hmm. amazing to watch. Like she is the highlight of the movie. <laughs> hey, Mom, we go now. Do you feel anything? Do you get any physical enjoyment from it? Not when I'm working. Oh, sometimes. Why do you think men like you? Well, we really can't go. Well, do you like her? She's very nice, Mum. What is it about her that you want? I don't mean just her sex parts. I mean, is there something else that's satisfying? Well, it's... What's a combination? How do you feel to be wanted in that way? Does it degrade you to have my son want you in that way, or do you think it only degrades him? I don't know. Close was only four years older than Robin Williams when making this movie. She was only one year older than Mary Beth Hurt. Yeah, I mean, it's just she's got that mature look. I know. And that transformation ability. I mean, that's the other thing. She can, she is a chameleon. She can totally transform into a character which has always been her calling card as an actress. She landed the role when George Roy Hill and casting director Marion Doherty saw her on Broadway in Barnum. Mm. She did a ton of theater before this, so that helps. Who could have been better? Get ready to laugh at this one. Mm-hmm. Per Variety, Pat Benatar was offered the role. What? That makes no sense. <laughs> Hit me with your best shot and fire me from this movie because fuck that. Oh, I'm embarrassed for you, David. I had to do it. No, you really didn't, but okay. Let's watch that out because we're now going to talk about the other amazing highlight of this movie. It's John Lithgow playing Roberta Muldoon. We've talked about him three different times on this show, Terms of Endearment, Cliffhanger, and Dreamgirls. He's an absolute fave actor of ours. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. A comedy powerhouse as well. He is. He's great. Now, we, we of course, don't love that a cishet white gentleman is playing a trans character. Absolutely. That's, that's not good. Don't like that. I will say, though, it was I was so waiting for something gross with Roberta. I was just I was so stealing myself because I had heard a little bit about it. And I was like, OK, I'm, I'm nervous about this. And it was just a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. It was it was no one cared. Roberta was like, oh, that's this is why you know me <laughs> or and and then, you know, the. The offhanded joke, which wasn't necessary, but it came from her, which was nice. It, it, it was nice that the character was just matter-of-factly trans and happy and living their life. Yeah. Like, like just, just in the world as people are. <laughs> and maybe the sweetest human being in the universe. Yeah. Dead men don't. Yeah, dead men don't bitch either. I've got to go. It's late. Goodbye, darling. Oh. You can't stay. No, I have to go have a heartbreak in Manhattan. 
He's young. He's handsome. Oh, what can I do? Maybe this time it'll work out. Maybe so. I'm a hopeless romantic in a male chauvinist world. Bye, darlings. Here's what I, I do love and appreciate is that in 1982, I know that's not an argument to make it right, okay? No. But in terms of the writing of the character, sure. not addressing it is going to make it even weirder, mm-hmm. especially in that time and then noting that the story's kind of happening even before the present day. Mm-hmm. At some point, you're going to have to address the fact that somebody is trans on screen. Sure. And he does it. And then he does it as a matter of course. And what I love is that not only does he do that, but Robin doesn't mug for the camera. He reacts instead of the, huh, completely honest. Interesting. That's what I think works so well about it. Yes, it's there's no pretense. Yeah, there's no and there's no cartoonish double taking of it. Just only garps like you're so completely frank and honest about things. When you've clearly been through a whole lot in your life. Huh. Interesting. And then moves on because everything else is is even wackier around him. Yeah. I, I like that she is not a wacky character or person. She might be the most grounded in that community. She truly is. And she's just a part of their lives, which, you know, shouldn't be, you know, shocking. And yet it is. Um, so that's that's lovely. John Lithgow uh, does a lovely performance. You know, I would like a, a you know, we, we would like trans people to play trans characters and that would be great. I'm just really thankful for the thoughtfulness he brought to the performance. And you yes. can tell Lithgow was like, I'm going to do this character justice. Sure. Or, well, he's he's going to be serious about it. And yes. um, it didn't come off as an actor in drag. Which is no. often how that sometimes is. It just we were so ready for it to be super, super icky, and there are things about it that are icky, but it is mostly sweet. Yeah, sweet. Nice. Sweet is the perfect word. Who could have been better? I mean, I mean, a, a trans person. Yes. Yes, number one. <laughs> Despite the fact that his ex-wife was cast in the film in a leading role, William Hurt actively campaigned for this role. Wow. Okay. I don't know that he'd bring the same nuance that Lithgow did. I don't think he has the gentleness that John Lithgow has. I love William Hurt as an actor. But yeah, oh, sure. That dude, is, that dude is sinister as a presence. He's so authoritative. And John Lithgow has that gentle giant thing. Yeah. It, it, he's just, he's very, he can just be so sweet. Yeah. I, I love William Hurt, but Lithgow was such a better cast for this. And that is it for our main cast for the movie. Let's move on to a few Arpons. Arpons, random people of note. Playing Mr. Fields, Jenny's father, Hume Cronin. He is a character actor of mm, some note. He shows up in Spartacus, Hamlet, Cocoon, The Pelican Brief, and a number of other very famous movies. Mm-hmm. He was also married to Jessica Tandy, Tandy playing yeah. Mrs. Fields. Mm-hmm. Jessica Tandy in Cocoon, Driving Miss Daisy, and Fried Green Tomatoes. I love Jessica Tandy. Those two, the fact that they put them together in the same movie, quite adorable. Mm -hmm. Very cute. They were into a lot of movies together, actually. 
they were especially late in their careers they they did a lot of movies together Mm -hmm. which was actually like that's really adorable and i love it it's a good way to to spend your time together (laughs) swoozy kurtz playing and i hate having to say this but this is her credited name the hooker yeah she is a character actor in so many different things most notably reality bites liar liar and she had a small role in Slapshot. She also was one of the leads in one of the best, like, primetime soap operas, Sisters. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, because I talk about it all the time, and the fact <laughs> that it's not streaming anywhere is bullshit. It'll get there someday. Brenda Curran playing Pooh. She played Nancy Clutter, one of the sisters that gets murdered in In Cold Blood. Hmm. Amanda Plummer playing Ellen James. She is a fantastic character actress who you would best know as Honey Bunny in Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay. John Irving playing the wrestling referee at the match. He is, of course, our author. And playing the pilot that crashes into the house. Hey, it's pre-disastered. <laughs> Such a good line. Mm-hmm. Is our director, George Roy Hill. Mm-hmm. Cute. One Arpon who could have been better. Oh. Originally cast as Duncan, Garp's oldest son, Mm -hmm. was Justin Henry, a.k.a. Billy Kramer from Kramer vs. Kramer. Oh, yeah, that kid was great. However, just when they were working with him on set, his presence just didn't mesh right. It wasn't working out when they started filming. Mm -hmm. So they decided they were going to move on. As with our Oscar series, we will always talk about nominations, but not winners. This was nominated for two Academy Awards. Best Supporting Actor for John Lithgow, mm-hmm. and Best Supporting Actress for Glenn Close. All right. No Robin Williams here, which I kind of get. It's like his first big film breakout. Sure. Like Popeye happened, and that was a disaster, and nobody sure. talked about it. But this was his first like big, hey, he might be a movie star. Mm-hmm. And finally, a few little pieces of trivia. The Wilmerding Estate on Fisher's Island doubled as Jenny's halfway house. It was mentioned in publicity notes, which caused the owner, David Wilmerding, to threaten legal action. Hmm. He claimed that neither he nor the home should have received publicity, and he now considered himself a target of the public. Hmm. However, a set designer had actually scouted it from a book called Summer Places that was published in 1978, so it had already received similar publicity in the past. Hmm. And finally, the house that is crashed into was built at the end of a single runway at a small Lincoln Park, New Jersey airport. The house, though, was not removed for several weeks after filming. No planes have ever hit houses in that vicinity, though one plane did bounce off the roof of a passing car a few years before filming. Mm. Yikes! Wow. Yeah, that's insane. (laughs) And that is it for the world according to Garp. As with all of our movies, we will have a specific rating for this movie ah it's not wrestling unitards (laughs) and please nothing to do with ellen james no typewriters typewriters okay typewriters writing such a big part of this movie yep i will go first i'm gonna give this one a three it's a hot mess it really is and the story just doesn't quite work but those performances are so good Mm mm-hmm like just phenomenally good that they actually managed to salvage the movie, which is so hard to do. It speaks to the level that the actors are working at 
that they took a an off the mark and kind of mess script and a kind of meta directing and really just made it into something that is why it got nominated for performance awards. Hmm. I'm going to give it a three. It's worth watching for those performances. It's just odd. It's really odd. I'm going to go with a two and a half. I just, the, the story is just too, too big of a problem for me to, to bump it up any higher. I do love all the performances, but yeah, it's a two and a half. That's fair. Well, that's it for this movie this week. So we have to move on to our next film. Which is? Well, we are going back to the well of television comedy writing. Oh, okay. And in this case, to a movie starring the greatest drunken Englishman to ever grace the silver screen. We are watching Peter O'Toole in My Favorite Year. All right. I know nothing about this film, though. Neither right. do I. Okay, cool. I had like never heard anything about it, but uh, after reading into it a little bit, I'm a little excited. This one seems like it could just be plain fun. All right. But before we go, we have some new movies to talk about. This week we saw Scream. 25 years after the original series of murders in Woodsboro, a new ghost face emerges and Sidney Prescott must return to uncover the truth. This movie is fun. It's fucking fun. I mean... My expectations were very low. Oh, okay. And then they were. I was like, I am expecting nothing out of this film because it's a requel, which they thoroughly explain in the movie. <laughs> but it did a really great job of shitting on its own franchise in the places where it desperately needed to. Definitely a lot of fan service, but in a fun, good way. And it was made by people who clearly love and respect the original. So yeah, it was just, it was fun. It was a good time. If they make more, I'm ready for it. Like they set it up well to be able to do that in a, in a, what I felt was a satisfying way. We all have been through the Scream saga with us. <laughs> like I fucking love that movie. That movie slaps. And this one was fun. Like it was a good time. They did a really good job of, of, balancing the meta with an actual compelling you know slasher thriller sure. and they went way deeper on the meta this time because they were like we are gonna have to go for broke on that like yeah. there's no way around it because we know what movie we're making sure <laughs> but at the same time it's never to the point where you're just eye rolling and being like what this is all that we just did this so we could cash cow it they mm -hmm. never got to that point there was always a storyline that it came back to and and always came back to the whole thing of like, this is a fucking thriller. People are dying. It's not good. Mm -hmm. It's really good. It, it's it's solid. And like, you know, if you're if you're not a fan of the Scream series, eh, maybe this one isn't necessarily for you. But also, if you're not a fan of the Scream series, what's wrong with you? Yeah. They're so good. They are. They're very good. So I, I, I was very, very happy. I wasn't like, blown out of the water but i was just like i feel good about this this was a good time so until next time have a good movie thanks for listening be sure to review and rate us on itunes stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast for questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.